I want to talk about incarnational mission. We talk about ourselves as being relational mission. And, of course, relationship is the most important thing uh, in human life. Uh, so many research studies show uh, that as humans we need relationship. Uh, we can't just be an island on our own. Uh, but one of the things that we believe in racial uh, mission is not only the importance of relationship, but particularly being incarnational in our mission. In other words, that we exhibit the likeness of Christ. That's what we're called to. We're called to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And so our whole lives are taken up with making him known uh, in the world. And uh, so I want to talk a little bit about incarnational mission. But I want to start with a, a quote from Tim Keller. And uh, it's a fairly long one, but uh, stick with it. And I, I hope you'll see where I'm going. As great as it is, God did not simply send us the Bible, a message through the communication medium of writing. If that was all he could do for us, salvation would ultimately be in our hands. It would have been up to us to follow his instructions. But instead, God also came himself in the flesh to be fully present to us in Jesus Christ. It is only through his being fully present with us that we could be saved by grace. In the same way, we must learn to be fully present in community with our neighbors and with our Christian brothers and sisters. It is not enough to simply show up at a church service where you live physically, but then try to maintain all your closest relationships with friends and family members who live far away. God made us embodied beings. The body, though it is weakened by sin, is a great good. God was so positive about our bodies that he himself assumed a body in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If we are going to give and receive grace from each other, we have to get it the way God gave it to us. We have to be involved in accountable friendships and deep relationships with other people where we live. For me, there's two helpful reminders in those paragraphs from uh, Tim Keller. The first is that reminder that we are called to be like Christ. We are called to incarnational mission. Remember when Jesus was resurrected and he appeared to his disciples in the upper room, uh, that he said those wonderful words, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. It's worth thinking and meditating upon that. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And I'll try and unpack that in a, a few moments' uh, time. And it raises, of course, that, that question, how do we respond to that commission to be like Jesus, to be incarnational? But the second thing it reminds me here is that it, we are also called to community. And therefore, in our mission, the importance of the church. Uh, I think as I get older and older, I see more and more the importance of the local church. Um, I won't go into it now, but through the years, uh, I've been very heavily involved in counselling of different kinds. Uh, so my early counselling when I went full-time, I spent a long time in a women's rehab, uh, dealing with mainline uh, heroin addicts and abused women. And right the way through the years, I've been in many counselling kind of situations. And I've been on many training courses, and uh, I've talked to many, many people about counselling, trying to learn how to help people um, uh, through my life in terms of pastoral ministry. But the more I've gone on, the more I've understood that the key to bring in release and freedom and change and transformation in people is the body of Christ. 
and the relationships. And if I just give that illustration, even from that uh, working with the women drug addicts, um, one of the things I soon found is that the, the women didn't trust anybody. Certainly didn't trust me. I was a male. And uh, some, of the, some of the girls had been sexually abused when they were four or five years of age. Their view of the world and, uh, and their parents and everything else was absolutely out the window. But I gradually started to understand that the only people they really trusted was their grannies. And uh, it was really quite strange, really. But I understood, the more I talked to them, the more I found out that they actually had a relationship with granny. Even though everything else had fallen apart, they still had this trust in granny. So I thought, well, what should I do? I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll get the grannies in the church to look after them. And so I went to the grannies in the church and I said, you know, and some of them are, you know, a bit scared, but I said, look, would you form a relationship with these girls and, uh, and talk with them and just help them through their issues? I tell you, the transformation was amazing. I didn't have to do anything. I just stepped back <laughs> and these grannies just came to the fore. And it, and it helped me to understand that within the body of Christ, there are all different kinds of people that God has saved and God has shaped and God has transformed. And it's when we work together as the church uh, that we're able to bring the gospel to life in the communities where we live. And so it's not only important to understand that we are called personally to incarnational mission, but the importance that the Bible lays upon the community of God, the body of Christ. That old uh, verse in Ephesians uh, 3, 10 and 11, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the New Testament of course paints an amazing picture of a glorious church that Christ is producing on the earth. The central fulfillment of God's plan and purposes has to do with the church and God working his purpose out through the church. Now, I'm not going to talk about that because I'm going to leave that to Morris. And uh, when I finish in a moment, Morris is going to come and talk about the importance of the church and uh, that, uh, uh, things that we value very much in relational mission. But I want to talk about um, Jesus' life on earth with you for a few moments and uh, see what lessons we can learn from his incarnation that will help us in our incarnational um, mission. Now, there are many things that we can adopt from Jesus' life and seek to imitate, but I need to put a caveat in here that I do believe that there are other things that are impossible for us and impossible for us to attempt because there is only one incarnate Son of God. I think it's important that we understand that. Jesus was totally unique. He was fully man and he was fully God. And so when I'm talking here, what I want to say is that I'm going to give you, try and give you some broad principles. Okay? But we need to understand there are some things that only Jesus was able to do. But there are other things that we can imitate and that we can follow uh, in his footsteps. The power of Jesus' incarnation really is that he made the presence and glory of the unseen God visible. I'll say that again. He made the presence and the glory visible of the unseen God visible. Hans, you know, when you're talking with, uh, uh, with folks that uh, don't know Christ and you're trying to share with them the gospel, they say, well, if you show me God, you know, I'll believe in him. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did. He showed who God was. The glory of God was manifest. And I believe that we're called to the same. 
Remember that great Hebrews 1. Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. He is, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Great words, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. When you saw Jesus, you saw God. John says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The message puts it this way, The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I like that version became flesh and blood and moved into their neighborhood so that all could see him. He came to live amongst them. The actual Greek meaning of the word means to pitch one's tent, to encamp, to tabernacle. John also says in his first chapter, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And I believe our call to go has that same aim in mind, that we are called to make the presence and the glory of the unseen God visible. I'll talk a little bit more about the glory on God on Sunday morning uh, when we're together with the, the folks at Redeemer Church uh, because I think it's a theme that actually we, we often don't talk a lot about, making the presence and the glory of the unseen God visible. So what lessons can we learn from Jesus' incarnation that will help us as we think about God's call on our life and that call to go and serve him and to manifest his glory in the world. First is this, that Jesus took a definite decision to live amongst those he sought to reach. Now, of course, we know that was a result of his obedience to the Father. And actually, our response should be the same as well, that we respond out of obedience. Jesus gave the Great Commission to his disciples after his resurrection to go into all the world and do you remember also one of the things that he said on the Passover night was that uh, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so our response of love is being obedient uh, to that commandment. But Jesus chose to live amongst those uh, he sought to reach. He was obedient. And he illustrated, you know, even with the cross on that night, it was, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And John says, the Father sent the son the son was obedient he chose to identify and to reside amongst the lost Uh, Luke in chapter 19 verse 10 you remember says that he came into the world to seek and to save the lost that was the reason for his coming he chose to come because he chose to come for the lost and he says that many times in the gospels doesn't he he said I've not come to call the healthy to repent I've come for the sick I've come for the sinner. I've come for those. That's why they couldn't understand Jesus because they thought if you're a truly righteous man, then you'll spend your time like the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the temple and all those kind of things. No, but they found him eating and drinking with the tax collectors and with the prostitutes. And they couldn't understand how a holy man could actually touch all these people. But that's what he came for. He came to identify with the lost. He chose to do that. And we need to understand that and think about that ourselves. Why, why are we doing this? I talk about this on Sunday as well, you know. Why do we want to go? Why do we want to get involved in God's mission? What is it that's motivating us? Jesus came for the lost. 
He chose to do that. And he knew what it would cost him to be amongst the lost. He knew what it was, in that sense, to be a human being like you and I. You see, the context in which Jesus was coming into was one in which he didn't really fully belong. It wasn't his home. Often in the scriptures we talk about Jesus came from above. And you remember in John 1 again it says, He came unto his own and his own received him not. Jesus came into a hostile environment. He knew he was coming into a hostile environment. He knew it would be a context in which he didn't quite feel at home. But then that's what the New Testament says about us as believers, isn't it? It's what Peter says. We are all aliens and strangers in the world. Paul in Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven. So there's a sense in which wherever we go in the world, we're always going to be strangers and aliens. When I was very young, we used to sing an old song, you know, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. You know, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. You know, really old, old chorus <laughs> in those days. But actually, the sentiment of that is, is really good. We are just passing through. And uh, one of the hardest things to face when you go into cross-cultural ministry, or even if you move from one part of the country to another, is that sometimes that, that strong feeling of alienation, I don't fit here. But we go because we're going out of love and obedience to Jesus because we're following his example. He knew the context that he was coming into. He knew it wouldn't be easy. He knew he would be alien, not feeling quite at home. And we have to be prepared. That's one of the costs of actually moving. Uh, when I was in business, uh, just before I went into full-time ministry, um, my, my firm moved me from the south of England where I'd always lived up to the north of really the middle is just south of Manchester and uh, I found it really weird because we'd only been in our house two days and people started flooding through the back door because in the village in which we lived nobody used the front door they always came round to the back door knocked on the back door and walked straight in didn't even you know wait for you to open it you know or say oh come in no they just knocked on the door and straight in well you can imagine we were coming from the south and you know if we'd been in the bathroom or something like that you know we didn't expect people to just suddenly appear in the kitchen you know through the back door and and so wherever you move even if you're moving in your own country with your own language different parts of the country actually have different subcultures and so you can often not feel comfortable but we do need to make that choice that says, yes, Lord, wherever you're sending me, I'll go. We've just been singing that wonderful song and talking about surrender, isn't it? Yeah, he demands our love. And one of the ways that we show that actually is by being willing to move into that. So the first thing I think is there's a definite decision to live amongst those that he was trying to reach. And I believe that needs to be in our heart. Lord, you're calling me to do this. And I'm going to be strange in this context and I'm going to have to face things that are are different and strange. But I'm going because you've called me and I've heard your voice. Secondly, Jesus had what I would call a long period of cultural immersion before his public ministry. For three decades he was exposed to the culture and worldview of the people that he came to save. He lived and worked amongst mostly working class Jewish people. And as he did so, he absorbed their culture He learned to understand them intellectually as well as experientially and he lived among them and was able to identify with them in their struggles. 
Jesus' 30 years provided a fully rounded cultural learning experience. Academic, practical, theoretical, experiential. But we don't have that same luxury. At least that most of us don't. We don't have that opportunity to get some cultural enculturation, you know, for 30 years. That just kind of doesn't happen uh, these days. Lots of things, you know, can uh, go against that, like your age, your life situation, your family, uh, whether you can get a visa or not, um, you know, funding. All those kind of things uh, conspire against us. Sometimes we were talking earlier, weren't we? They can, there can be mountains that actually get in the way of you, you actually on the pathway. You feel, this is where God has called me. This is where I'm going. But we come up against, you know, things. See, I can remember a, um, one girl who was uh, going out to the Maldives and uh, she'd worked really, really hard <coughs> to get her qualifications to get into the country because a lot of the countries now, because they're coming up in terms of their economics and everything else, when people come into the country, those that they allow in, now have to be at a higher grade uh, than they used to take in. They used to be willing to take it but these days you have to go up <coughs> and so she was all ready to go to the Maldives and when they changed the Maldives governments changed their mind and said if you're coming you must have a PhD so what do you do I'll tell you what she did she went for three years and did a PhD and went to the country that's amazing isn't it but you see she was so convinced of that you know, this is the right thing to do. God had called her this way. We're going to overcome this mountain. If that's what it means, I'm going to go and do that. We mustn't lose, I believe, the importance of cultural immersion. The missiologist Paul Woods says this, long-term immersion in the right place and with a high degree of focus can be a powerful tool to help us function more and more as insiders ministering from within and less and less as friendly but foreign faces at the window to whom so many nuances of local culture and socio-politics are opaque and confusing. Do you understand what he's saying? It's so easy actually to become someone who just goes in from the outside and who has little understanding of what's going on. So if I go back to my village illustration when I moved up north, you know, that's one of the lessons I had to learn. If I'd lived there for a while, I'd know that's how they live, you know. And sometimes we need to learn these things. We need, obviously, to learn language, but we need to learn, you know, how people think, how people feel, how the family works, uh, how employment works. All these kind of things are so important when we are trying to reach people. I guess the key lesson what I'm trying to say here is that time spent getting to know your host culture is never wasted time but it is vital to your ability to function effectively in the new situation where you are. Never consider that to be a waste of time. I know sometimes when I've, uh, I've been dealing with uh, kind of young people sometimes who are very keen, you know, who feel, yeah, God's calling me. I've got to get out there. <laughs> I've got to do something. And, uh, and so they're so keen to get out there. And when you say to them, look, this is great. When you get there, I'd like you to do no evangelism whatsoever. I'd like you just to learn the language for two years and just have people in your house, get to know them, get to understand what's going on, on in the culture. It's like you've put a huge break on them. Now I could tell, I was talking on, on the way up t- today, I was saying that I know, got to be careful what I say, I almost want to cut it off. But I know, I know for example, of two churches in Spain out of our family, okay? One, one church went there and they didn't take that advice of spending two years 
okay, learning the culture and all the rest of the stuff and you know, just getting to know what's happening around there. Do you know what happened? They planted a church, but it became expat. Why? Because they didn't have the language and they didn't understand the culture. So the people that gravitated towards them were all the expats. And if you know anything about Spain, right the way down the coast of Spain, there are hundreds of expat churches. But they are gone to actually reach the Spanish because the Spanish need to hear the gospel. And so that's why they're gone. But actually... It didn't quite work out. Now, years on now, they are, they have got Spanish in there. You know, it's, it's gradually worked itself out. But another church I know in another part of Spain, they did the two-year thing and the language thing. And right from day one of the church plant, they had Spanish people. Why? Because they made friends with so many people. Because they knew where the people liked to eat. They knew the, what the people, you know, they knew all their culture and, and everything else about it. So the key lesson I'm trying to say here, you know, is that even Jesus himself submitted himself, himself to 30 years of just being around people before his public ministry. And therefore he was in a position where you just think of how he connected with people in terms of his stories and his parables and the sayings that he had. Now where did he learn all those things? Well, I think he learned those through the years that he spent just living amongst people. So never consider that to be a waste of time the time that you put in to actually learn in the culture and so forth. It's ever so important. And there are lots of helps around today uh, that help us to understand culture. Uh, there's lots of things that you can look at, multimedia, internet, web pages. Uh, you can glean experience from those who've gone out to those places before you. You can cultivate friendships with nationals. Now, you know, my, my current neighbours on my right-hand side now are from Lithuania. The previous ones were some, somewhere else in the Baltics. And uh, when I used to live in Christchurch in Dorset, my next door neighbours were from Iran. You don't have to go anywhere these days, you know, to actually, you know, find nationals from other places. And you can glean so much from them. I can tell you quite a lot about post, uh, Persian, uh, you know, festivals and so forth because, you know, I've rejoined in with our, you know, our neighbours next door. You learn these things. Uh, so there are ways that God can teach you uh, there are lots of things that you can pick up, insights, language study and so forth. But there is no substitute for living amongst people. And Jesus lived amongst those. Third thing I want to say is that the Father's providence over his life set in. David Bosch, who's a well-known missiologist, wrote a great book, Theology and the History of Mission, writes about Jesus' ministry in Luke's Gospel. And he says that in that Gospel... Luke portrays Jesus constantly breaking down cultural barriers between Jewish people, bringing reconciliation and demonstrating the inclusivity of God, particularly with the marginalized. And he reflects on the fact that Jesus was born under dubious family circumstances. He became a refugee in Egypt. He probably lost his father at an early age before he began his public ministry. And he suggests that all those kind of experiences and his life lived for 30 years allowed him to identify with the outcast and the poor and the unloved. And they were important elements that shaped his own worldview and ministry practice. If I put it this way, he, he gained an emotional sense of belonging to those to whom he ministered. Now the fact that Jesus followed his father's trade and became a carpenter at first sight can appear it's not a good ground 
for preparation for later ministry. And yet his public ministry was full of stories and parables, but they went about carpentry and wood manufacture. Rather, the stories were about agriculture, they were about hard workers, they were about domestic and family life. Now, I wonder why was that? Well, because as a carpenter, or probably a better phrase to use for him was a builder, that that in his day, if you know anything about the history, there was a lot of building going on just up north of Nazareth. And it's quite likely that Jesus, along with other builders or carpenters, got very much engaged in what was being built uh, for the Romans and the Herods and, and so forth. But it was a service industry that was carried on in an urban or, or semi-urban setting. And so Jesus, in doing that, was close to the heart of the community, if you like, the centre of action. In his trade, he would have met and associated with people from all kinds of backgrounds. And therefore, he was perfectly positioned to hear all the latest happenings, the stories of events and incidents, even gossip and rumours, and to learn from a wide range of people's life issues and situations. And could therefore build up a store of second-hand accounts, anecdotes, worldly wisdom that are rooted in everyday life. Now why are you saying all this? Well, because I believe the providence of God is wonderful in terms of our life settings. What I mean by that is, where you were born, what kind of family you, you were born into, your education, your social status, the job that you've done, your journey to Christ... All those things by the providence of God are preparation for the task of incarnational mission. Those life experiences that we have walked through shape us firstly to be more like Christ, but they prepare us in advance for the good works that God has planned for us to do. So I, I tell you, I, I was badly affected by my mother's death just before my 19th birthday. She'd had an eight-year battle with cancer. And over eight years, uh, I watched her struggle. And then just a couple of days before my birthday, uh, she went to be with the Lord. That was devastating for me. And yet on the other hand, it was a glorious experience because I found the comfort of God in the midst of my suffering and in the midst of my pain. Now what I didn't know was that when I went into full-time ministry, the first lady that I had to deal with was a young mother who had cancer of the spine, so her spine was totally disintegrating, and she'd just given birth to twins. Fancy handling that? Going in, sitting with the family, telling them that God is good, and yet here she is, just produced these wonderful twins, and now her spine's totally disintegrating, and only weeks to live. I was able to handle that, not because I'm anything, but because God had prepared me. And because of what I went through with my mother, I was able to empathize, I was able to know how they were feeling, I was able to say things, which in a sense I was surprised, what was that coming out of my mouth? Why did they say that? But because God had prepared me for that. So what I'm trying to say here, it was the same for Jesus. Because he lived amongst the people, because he listened, because he worked amongst them, he knew what they were thinking, the way they thought. He knew what they held valuable. He knew what their superstitions were. He knew all about them because he lived that way. But his experience prepared him. And your experience prepares you. You don't know what's coming around the bend. But God does. 
And you need to be confident in that because sometimes when we're sensing a call from God, that God is calling me to do something, to go somewhere, we can feel you know, quite uneasy about it, even fearful, even anxious about it. But what you need to know is God right the way through your life has been shaping you for this time. And also not only for this present time, but for the things that you're going to face in the future. Isn't that great? That's why Jesus was so powerful. Because he went through those things and God's hand was upon him. Fourthly, very quickly, learning must be experiential. It's one thing to read about social issues and deprivation. It's quite another to experience them firsthand. There's no substitute for taking time to immerse oneself in the living, breathing, hurting society which our target people call home. We must immerse ourselves in the local culture and learn from the local culture so that we gain a good grasp of those things. Uh, When I told you that I worked with women drug addicts, one of the things I did with them at one time was that I I took them down to our local shopping centre because we were trying to raise funds because in those days it was, you know, the government wouldn't give you funds for rehab and stuff so we had to all raise it by things and so we had an open meeting. I stood with these girls and I was astounded at the hostility of the public where some of them would you know, put money in a bucket but others would just stop and they would say the most horrible things about these girls and how it was all their fault, you know, they're destroying their own lives, you know, why should we give, you know, to people, you know. And I'd spent all that time with them in terms of, you know, listening to their stories and how they got in this and how they got to become heroin addicts but standing with them I was receiving the hostility that the general public were giving towards them that really helped me it wasn't nice (laughs) but it helped me to understand where they were and to feel where they were to understand what I'm saying you can read about these things you can look on the internet you can read about the social problems and so forth it's nothing like actually being amongst people and touching flesh and blood, as it were, in those places. So, so important uh, that we, we learn to do that. Watch the time. Okay, next one. His ability to understand and empathize with all in society. I love the way with Jesus that there appeared to be no distinction or barrier of race, of social status, or, or gender. It seems that he was at home with the poor and the prostitutes, just as much with the religious leaders, women just as much with men. And uh, there were times when he had to deal uh, with status and social barriers, and when he did so, he dealt with it carefully and sensitively. He knew when to challenge the status quo, and he knew when to be more accommodating to the existing culture around him. But just think of all the different types of people that we see Jesus encounter in the Gospels. This is one of the things, um, first ever, it's one of the things you'll find in my book uh, called uh, <laughs> Reaching the Nations. It's a wonderful book by my wife's husband. And, uh, and in it you'll see there that I, I illustrate this, you know, of, it's one of the questions I ask people when they're, they're, they feel called to cultural mission and so forth. And I, and I say to them, I, are you, how good are you across the ages, you know? Do you get on with children? Do you get on with middle-aged folk? Do you get on with old people? How are you with the disabled? What are you like with the poor? You know? Because the wonderful thing about Jesus was he seemed to be home with all of them. 
And that's something we need to cultivate. We need to ask God to help us to love everyone. We don't want to get ourselves into ghettos where we only kind of deal with one kind of person. No, the gospel is for all nations and for all people. Whatever their background, whatever their status. And we need to learn uh, to love them and ask God by the Spirit to help us to love different kinds of people. So very important. I've made a list. I am made a you know, complete list. But you think the rich young ruler, the tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus, he had close friends like Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He loved the children. There were the social outcasts, the lepers, the demon-possessed, the marginalized, who in those days, of course, were the blind and the deaf and the lame. Then there's Nicodemus, you know, the senior politician in the Sanhedrin, the centurion, the symbol of the occupying force. Amazing different kind of people that Jesus. And Jesus can help us to love everyone. Do you know, it's, it's not easy. I worked with Tear Fund for a while, <clears throat> and um, it was a time when Tear Fund were actually trying to help churches to move into their communities. And so they got together um, a, a pack of uh, teaching and training materials uh, to help churches to really reach their communities. And when they did their first pilot uh, in some churches, just to see how it would run, whether they needed to adjust it or whatever, uh, they found that uh, it went down really well. And they started to make inroads into their community. But the thing that they found was that the people in the church were getting offended because they were reaching their community. But on a Sunday morning, one of the guys from the street, who absolutely smelled to high heaven, came and sat next to them. And it wasn't long before these churches who had been trained in this way were actually saying to their leaders, I don't know whether we should really be reaching so far into the community. And, uh, and what Tiafan learned from that was that actually, before you can do anything in reaching out into the community, you have to deal with heart attitudes and with prejudice and with things that are, that are here that people react to. And it's important to understand that. You know, and so even though we might be saying, well, you know, we've got to love all people, all different types and backgrounds and so forth, we have to recognize we all have personal prejudices. We all need to be changed. Wonderful thing about Jesus was his attitudes were totally righteous. We're not like him. But we can become like him. That's the grace of God at work in our lives, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit, because he works in us both the will and to do of good good pleasure. So very important. He had a powerful undermining, of course, of established social norms when it was needed, like the Samaritan woman, or uh, even washing the disciples' feet when nobody else would, you know. Jesus was able to break through those barriers, took courage to do that at times, and sometimes it takes courage in different situations to actually break through and make a different way uh, for people. Don't know how many of you have read much of Leslie Newbegin. Do you know the name Leslie Newbegin? Oh, dear, dear, dear. Yeah, one down the front. <laughs> Read anything by Leslie Newbegin. He was a, a missionary in India uh, uh, for many years. But I love reading some of his stories where, uh, you know, he went and um, there was one time where uh, there were Indian laborers and they weren't, they weren't getting paid anything. You know, many of them were getting injured and so forth. And, and so he went down and he said, why don't we form a trade union <laughs> and we'll go to the bosses and we'll demand, you know, that the conditions change. And they were, oh, oh, no, 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 no. But he took them by the hand and they talked it all through and they went and the bosses totally changed. 
They started giving them the wages they should. They started looking after them better. And it was fabulous. I mean, he was a stranger in some ways, but he had got into the culture. He, he got the confidence of the people. And where he saw something that needed to be changed with them, he got about the change. That's great, isn't it? Jesus knew when to come. Sometimes he backed off. Sometimes he really came across those things. And wonderful thing about Jesus, I haven't got time to go into this, but uh, there's a great book by a guy called Alan Storkey. Um, Alan is actually the husband of Elaine Storkey. You might know her name better. Elaine was the president of Tear Fund, and she's a theologian and philosopher, and uh, she often speaks around in kind of Christian circles. But Alan, her husband, is also a great guy, and he wrote a book uh, called Jesus and Politics, Confronting the Powers uh, by Alan Storkey. And uh, in that book, he evidences how Jesus had a deep understanding of the society in which he lived, and particularly the kind of political things that were going on. And so there were sometimes when he moved, you can't always see this in the Gospels, sometimes when he moved out of certain areas because he knew if he was to stay there, he would just cause, you know, unrest. And so he moved off into different places. He had a good knowledge of what was going on. And I just want to ask you to just kind of think of that in terms of mission. That, uh, you know, we're... I'm going to say this again in another session. I get so saddened of going to churches on a Sunday morning when I'm preaching and something has happened in the world and it never gets a mention. It might be a major earthquake. It may be um, like in Yemen just as recently, um, you know, with so many more of the children being killed by the Saudi Arabian bombing and so forth. And in church, we never pray about it. Why? Because we're church and that's the world. No, 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 it's God's world. This is God's world. And so those things should affect us as well. And so we should be ready to get involved in those. And we should be aware of what's going on in our world around us. And I believe that, you know, when you look at Jesus and examine his life closely, he was quite aware of all that was going on around. And uh, we need to be aware of those things as well. Not only to pray about them, but sometimes we need to take uh, action uh, with those things. Okay. Okay, two more to go. <clears throat> Next thing I think you can learn from Jesus in terms of his incarnation was the way he taught and communicated. Now we know that for some people his message was at times perplexing and inevitably challenging. But it's interesting that he always centered on God's eternal plan for mankind. But think of the multiplicity of methods. So this is why sometimes I think some people don't respond to the call to go. Because they say, well, I, I'm not a preacher. You know, I can't stand up in front of people and open the Bible and, and teach. Well, think for a moment of all the different styles that Jesus used to communicate. There was the proclamation style. You might call that kind of preaching, really, like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Or you think when he uh, was at the lakeside, you remember he got into a boat and the crowds were in front of him and he taught, sat down and talked from the boat. So there was that kind of proclamation. There was also the formal setting of the synagogue. In Luke 4.15 it says he taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. And uh, that was exegesis, opening the word, uh, that kind of way. But there was also dialogue. Jesus was often involved in question and answer format. Paying taxes to Caesar. Was it right to fast? Uh, Questions about the Sabbath. Questions about when will the kingdom come? And so some of Jesus' communication 
of the good news of God's kingdom was done in a kind of dialogue question answer format we had uh, Tim Keller with us in uh, Cambridge a few years ago and uh, if you know anything about Tim Keller he always has a question and answer session after he preaches and uh, and so when we had the mission with all the students uh, in Cambridge and the churches uh, he would actually speak for about uh, you know 30 minutes and then there'd be a break for 10 minutes and in the 10 minutes you could all uh, on your on your mobile phones you could all you know put in your questions for Tim Keller and then he would spend another 20 minutes answering people's questions is that what happens in your church after after the preach right we'll have a question and answer time now <laughs> but you see there's lots of different ways you know we must must understand that there are different ways to communicate the gospel and Jesus used these different methods he answered of course individual inquiries when Nicodemus or the rich young ruler came and uh, we've got to be ready for that people coming up and asking us questions about our faith about Jesus we've got to be ready for those things individual inquiries and then of course he often spoke on the back of specific situations or events after miraculous healing you remember when they came down off the Mount of Transfiguration the disciples couldn't cure the epileptic boy and then Jesus steps in and on the back of that he, he preaches when the man is let through the roof uh, he takes the opportunity not only to heal him but to talk about forgiveness and uh, it talks about those occasions when Pilate mixed the blood of the Galileans or the Tower of Siloam collapsed and killed people and he spoke about the importance of eternity so using what's happening in the world to actually communicate uh, the gospel and then discipleship and here I'm going to come, uh, come in and try and land people learn best through the dynamic and interplay of formal classroom kind of lecture type teaching passing on information apprenticeship uh, sharing the life of another and immersion experience I don't know how many of you have read Building a Discipling Culture by Mike Breen but uh, he says this classroom learning is when information processes and facts are taught from teacher to student in the classical lecture setting apprenticeship is when someone learns a certain set of skills by apprenticing himself or herself to someone who already has learned the skills. Immersion is when someone is put into an environment, setting or culture and learns by intuitively picking up what he or she sees and experiences. And of course with Jesus and his disciples those kind of three things were happening all the time. And it's a way that we can think about too. I think also the learning of new styles is ever so important, that willingness to adapt and he adapted his presentation according to their educational level and experience. It's often interesting to watch that when Jesus was with the ordinary people, he often used narrative. If he was with the Pharisees or the Sadducees, he often argued logically with them. Have you noticed that? He, he seemed to change how he communicated because he understood his audience. He understood who he was talking to. And so he changed his communication in order to do that. So you see him sometimes with story or metaphor, those kind of things. But other times uh, he challenges uh, those. I'm going to skip that because I want Morris to say something. Last thing. <laughs> and this is perhaps, if you don't remember all the rest of it because it's a Friday night, this is the, the key thing that you uh, need to remember. And that is whole life communication. Being God's word to the people that God sends you to. Again, that John 1.14, uh, it says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
purpose for us is to proclaim and model God's word. Jesus was the living word and people could see and see the glory of God. I love um, those two things that we read of in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17. I'll read from the uh, message version. In the Messiah, in Christ, God leads us from place to place in one perpetual victory parade. Through us, he brings knowledge of Christ. Everywhere we go, people breathe in the exquisite fragrance. Because of Christ, we give off a sweet scent rising to God, which is recognized by those on the way of salvation, an aroma redolent with life. But those on the way to destruction treat us more like the stench from a rotting corpse. This is a terrific responsibility. Is anyone competent to take it on? No. But at least we don't take God's word, water it down and then take it to the streets and sell it cheap. We stand in Christ's presence when we speak and God looks us in the face. We get what we say straight from God and say it as honestly as we can. See those two things. On the one hand, the word of God proclaimed and on the other hand, a life lived. That's why Paul, when he writes to Timothy in the pastoral epistles, he constantly talks to him about watch your life and your doctrine. And uh, one of the books that's downstairs on the table is a book by Andy McCulloch called Global Humility. And uh, this is one of his favorite lines, or one of my favorite lines in his book. I'll talk about that tomorrow. We don't just contextualize our message, we contextualize ourselves because the message is in my life. Is that true? Just tell you one more story and then, Morris, are you ready? <laughs> Just tell you one more story. Um, one house I was living in, uh, two doors away, uh, there was the local sports editor. And uh, he, was a, he was a lovely guy, uh, but he was an absolutely confirmed atheist and he would argue the toss with you. And uh, sadly, very sadly, his wife got cancer and uh, she was dying and then she did die and uh, just when she died Bob came to my door and he knocked on my door and he said Mike would, would you do the funeral of my wife for me I said but Bob you don't believe in God and so forth he said well for these last five years I've watched you and your wife and your children and I can see that there is something in you and in your family that is real and that I know is not what I've got. And so I did the funeral for him. But you see, we hadn't realized that actually all our neighbors watch us all the time. They see what we do. They see who we're kind to. They see if we're rowing, you know. <laughs> you know all this, so they go, we all, all have our thoughts, don't we? You know, but they see the whole compass of your life, don't they? And that's the amazing thing about Jesus. They saw the compass of his whole life. His whole life constantly spoke of God his heavenly father he was the perfect the perfect imprint of the father I used to work in a bank and um, one of my jobs when I was a junior was to um, terrible old days we used to have to do up all the 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 fivers and the tenors you know in brown paper packages which we then tied with string and put wax on and then we used to take the bank's um, seal and then we used to you know thump it on and uh, we always had to make sure that the seal really you know was the imprint you know there otherwise we had to do it all over again you know and when you got to the end of a busy day and you've got all this stack of fivers and tenors to put in prey on papal parcels I tell you you wanted to get it right you know but I told me but Jesus was the exact imprint 
whatever he did, when he spoke, when he sat down and played with the kids, you know, when he was with the prostitutes or whether he was with Nicodemus, God was seen through him. The presence of God was made visible. And that's what God wants us to be like. That's why we are committed to incarnational mission. It's so that the glory of God is made visible, not simply through our individual lives, but through our community life too, as the church.